If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with me uh, to, to Genesis there again. Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, we're going to be uh, reading for starting in verse 17 and then going through the uh, end of the uh, chapter. I was joking around last week that uh, all these crazy Bible names that uh, are in here. And uh, here's another one uh, that we'll look at, uh, Melchizedek. Uh, and uh, some uh, people will pronounce it different ways. Uh, and again, as long as you say it boldly and say it proudly, it sounds good. So, Verse 17, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And after his return from the defeat of Chalotomar and the kings who were with him, Verse 18, Then the Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said in him, referring to Abram, Blessed be Abram, God most high, possessor, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies from your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons that take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only that what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Anur, Askel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. We find ourselves kind of as we've been looking at the life of Abram. Uh, chapter 14 is kind of the, the chapter that we've looked at starting last week where you had these, these, these nations or uh, city-states from, uh, from Mesopotamia, four of them rising up and coming and attacking some of the Canaanite uh, cities. And he had five Canaanite uh, kings and four uh, Mesopotamian kings going head to head with each other. And again, on paper, the, the, you would see the Canaanites would clearly win. But that was not the case. And as we saw last week, the, the Mesopotamians uh, kings came and conquered uh, many of the cities, including Sodom. And we're told here in chapter 14 that there was a specific person that was living in Sodom at that time. Abram's nephew, Lot. And he gets captured. That was just the tradition of the day. If you came and conquered the city, you, you got the people, you would take the, the men, you would take the, the especially the, the smart men and the wealthy men, and you would take them back to your, 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 your nation and they would become your servants and become your slaves. And so as Mesopotamian kings are going back home, the message comes to Abram and says, listen, your nephew Lot's been captured. Abram goes, and, and again, with, as we uh, looked at last week, Abram goes with only 318 men of his, goes and, and attacks the, the kings. He wins, rescues his nephew Lot. And as we find ourselves in verse 17 here, he comes back and he begins to then, uh, he comes back and begins to uh, kind of divvy up, if you want to say, kind of what happened here. Uh, King of Sodom comes out to meet him, kind of congratulates him. 
where was he during this time? He was, if you remember, he was hiding out in the tar pits uh, back up in the, up in the previous verse. Uh, him and uh, the king of Gomorrah uh, decided, you know, battle wasn't going too well, so let's just hide. And, and so he comes out of hiding and he welcomes Abram at that time. And so you have then in verse 17, the king of Sodom comes out to meet him, to congratulate him. But then we get to verse 18 and we read that someone else comes out and congratulates Abram. And that is this guy by the name of Melchizedek. We're told a couple things here. Number one, the Melchizedek was king of Salem. Now the question, of course, is what in what city is Salem? The old the, the, the city of the name of Salem refers to the city of Jerusalem. And that's very important if you will begin to think about your kind of your New Testament time and, and what happens throughout all the Old Testament. The, the city that, that God points to and the city that where where the kings of Israel point to and the, the city where the temple is is made is in what city? The city of Jerusalem. And here you have the guy by the name of Melchizedek who is king of Salem or a king of Jerusalem coming out and meeting Abram to congratulate him. That's why it says here in verse 18 that they brought out bread and wine. And again, that was, he was uh, kind of welcoming him. He's uh, kind of saying, hey, congratulations. Maybe, hey, let's make a treaty between some of us. And that's, uh, some people will point to that, that he is having that meal as a sign of having a, a peace treaty between Abram and Melchizedek. But the interesting that also between Melchizedek, not only is he the king of Salem, he is also at the end here, a, the priest of God most high. And we'll see how this all fits together more towards the end here when you look at the Hebrews passage. But this is important. Melchizedek is not just king, but he's also a priest. In the Old Testament time, you have all throughout the Old Testament scriptures that where God tells the nation of Israel, listen, your kings cannot be priests. They're separate. The, the king line comes through, through, uh, through the, the line of Judah, which is David and so forth. The priestly line comes to the, the Levites. But they're separate. That's what happened. Why one, if you remember the scene there, Saul is, is kind of freaking out. Uh, where he's king and, and all of a sudden everybody's kind of running away because of the battle that, and the enemy that's coming. And, and he was supposed to wait for, for uh, Samuel to come and offer sacrifices. Well, he kind of freaks out and he, Samuel's a little late. So what does Saul do? He offers the sacrifice in place of, of, of Samuel. And Samuel shows up and he says, you can't do that. You're king. Only the priest can do that. Here you have Melchizedek. And again, this is important for us to see, especially as we get towards the end in the Hebrews passage, that Melchizedek is both king and priest, and specifically priest of whom? God Most High. Now if you read books and, and sometimes do studies in Genesis here, you, you'll, tell, you'll hear people say this, of course, the question, who in the world is God most high? This is a Canaanite. And we assume, a lot of times we assume Canaanites, all Canaanites are pagans. 
wicked people. And so, of course, he's the priest of God Most High, has to be a Canaanite God. But then you look at how he describes God Most High in the next verses, and he calls them the Creator. And so if you're following along there in your, in your outline, he is Melchizedek. He is the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. Salem equals Jerusalem. And God Most High described, he describes God as being the Most High, referring to above all other gods. He is the, the highest God over everything so-called these other pagan gods. And he identifies this God Most High as the Creator. He identifies Him as the Creator. Listen to what, we'll follow along when he gets to verse 19 here. Blessed be Abram of God Most High. And who is this God Most High? He is the possessor. He is the Creator. And that's what the, the, the Hebrew term there literally means, Creator. Well, how in the world does our English translations get possessor? Because of the Hebrew mentality is this. If a person creates something, then they are the owners of that thing. God's the creator of this world. And He owns this world. Yeah, things have gone, gone haywire because of Satan. But He is the creator he is the possessor of heaven and earth. And again, people kind of freak out about this and think, okay, this is a Canaanite person. How in the world does he know that God, the Most High God, is also the Creator God? When you start with biblical history, we all go back to who? Adam and Eve. Melchizedek, goes back to uh, a more recent history, goes back to who? Noah and his <laughs> Every single person, I mean, you think of Noah. He, he worshipped God. He knew who the one true God was. He knew that God is the creator of the universe. He knew that. And he would pass that knowledge down to his children. And yes, some of his children were wicked. Canaan was wicked. But if you go back into Genesis chapter, and go back to Genesis chapter 10, which is what's called the, the table of the nations, where you have all those genealogies that, you know, we, we usually skip when we're, we're reading through the Bible. And you have all these genealogies of this person coming from this person, coming from this person, coming from this person. But if you actually sit there and read through those, and you look at, there's those, the nations. Egypt was a son. And there's this guy, one of Canaan's son, so one of the uh, was called Nimrod. He is described as a mighty hunter before the Lord. He knew who God was. And so all of Canaan's descendants were not wicked, evil people who had no knowledge of who God was. And so it doesn't make so so, so people that say, oh, this is Melchizedek, he's a pagan guy. It, doesn't make it. He understands who God is. Yeah, he doesn't know the name Yahweh. He doesn't know the name the Lord as Abram does. But he understands that there is a God above all other 
false gods, and he is the creator, and he is the owner of the heavens and the earth. Same in, Genesis, in, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says. Every single person in this world is held accountable because of the knowledge that God has put into creation. And the same is true with Melchizedek. He understood who God was, that he is the creator, possessor of heaven and earth. So he's the king of Salem. He is the priest of God Most High, the creator God, the all-powerful God. And he comes out to Abram as he, as Abram comes back from victory, he comes out to Abram and he says this, Blessed be Abram, God Most High. He asked God, Melchizedek asked God to bless Abram. He, he, he asked God to say, you know, God, may your favor be upon him. May your hand be upon Abram. Thank you for, for what you've done. Thank you for how you've been working in this, this man's life. May God bless Abram. But he also, verse 20 does what? Blessed be who? God most high. So he asks God to bless Abram and he praises God for giving Abram the victory. He praises God for giving Abram the victory. And so what's happening here is this. Melchizedek, because of his unique position as king of Salem and, and priest of God Most High, he understands. He understands that, that on paper, Abram should not have done this. He should not have won this battle. But God, God gave them the victory. God gave them, was God delivered, and as he said in verse 20, God delivered his enemies into his hands. God was the one that was out, that was fighting here for Abram. Yes, God to bless Abram. He praises God for giving Abram the victory. And Abram recognizes that too. Because what is Abram's response? At the end of verse um, at the end of verse 19, Abram gives Melchizedek a tithe. Abram gives him a tithe. And I know last week I kind of looked at the kind of mentioning you know, this understanding of tithe. And this is this is every time you give your tithes and offerings. This is the mentality behind tithing. The word tithe means 10%. That's, that is what the word tithe means. That's why we, we give 10% because of that's what the word tithe means. But the, the mentality is this, and this is what Abram's mentality was, and this is all throughout Scripture what a tithe mentality is, is that you understand that everything that, that God has given you is from Him. Abram understood that God was the one that gave him the victory. Abram understood that God was the one that delivered his enemies into his hands. And because of God being the one to give him the victory, Abram gives Melchizedek, who's God's representative, a tithe of those, you want to say, spoils of, of war. 
as a sign of saying, listen, I recognize God gave me the victory and I give you that 10% recognizing that. When we give our tithes, we're not giving to, to support uh, this church or, or, or that mission organization. That We give our tithes ultimately to whom? To God. It's the same mentality. We give our offering, we give our tithes as a recognition that everything that we have, God, belongs to you. And we give that portion, that 10% to you, surrendering our lives to you. Recognize everything that we have comes from you. The image here is, every, is, is this. You put your tithe, and we used to pass the offering place, and it's been so long since we've done that. Uh, once all this ends, we'll... Uh, well, hopefully we can get back to doing that and, uh, and so forth. But the image is this, is when you take your, your tithes and offering and you put it into the offering plate or you put it into the, the wooden box in the back, it is that offering that goes up to God and then God sends it back down and says to the church leadership, I give this to you to use wisely. We don't see that going up and down, but that's the spiritual application. That's the mentality that we need to have. We give to God, and then God gives it back. And why do we give God? Because it's a heart of gratitude. Abram understood. God gets the credit here. Abram understood. His heart is overflowing with gratitude. And he gives this tithe. He gives this as a sign of saying, as a sign of worship of saying, God, I get it. I get it, God. You're king. You did this, not me. The exact opposite of Melchizedek is this king of Sodom. Now, the king of Sodom, he is, and we, we saw this, and we'll see this over and over again, over throughout the next uh, several chapters, that Sodom and Gomorrah are some of the most wicked nations or wicked cities in the, that entire area. And so Melchizedek comes out and meets Abram and says, hey, congratulations, let's worship God, let's praise God, let's understand that what God has done here. The king of Sodom comes out and says, hey, you are powerful. I want to be still king. So if you're following along in verse 21, he says, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. In other words, you have this contrast between Melchizedek praising God, pointing to God, and king of Sodom, again with pride, with wickedness. This guy Melchizedek, these are the only several verses that we have of him. But he is a very important figure in the rest of the Bible. In fact, this is we're going to kind of jump out of Genesis now, and we're going to see, that especially at this point in time of of, the, of the, the, of the year where we're celebrating Christmas, how Melchizedek ultimately points us uh, to Jesus. And so if you are following along in your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews now. Hebrews chapter 7. We're not going to look at the uh, entire uh, section where the writer of Hebrews deals with Melchizedek. We're just going to look at the first three verses. But Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 and 3. Again, Melchizedek, he comes out to Abram. He is king of Salem, who later becomes uh, Jerusalem. 
He is the priest of, of the one true God, God most high, creator of the heavens and the earth. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, picks up this guy, Melchizedek, and talks about how Jesus is exactly like him. How Jesus is not just a priest and not just a king, but Jesus is both. Jesus is a priest and king. And we'll see that here in a few moments. Jesus is both priest and king. The writer of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is all about helping us to connect the Old Testament into what Jesus has done. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, you first couple of chapters, Jesus is greater than, than angels. Jesus is greater than, than, the, uh, than the, what Jesus did on the cross is greater than the Old Testament law. These verses that we thought, talk about, you know how you know, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away our sins, but Jesus' sacrifice can. And all of a sudden he gets down to verse, end of verse six, uh, chapter 6 here. And, and he says this, Jesus, having been come, having become a high priest, forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews says, listen, Jesus is greater than the Levites. Why? Because Jesus' priesthood actually comes from what Melchizedek did back in Genesis chapter 14, which is why Jesus' sacrifice is greater than the blood of bulls and goats. And so then all of a sudden, the writer of Hebrews kind of points a couple things out here. And this is why it's so important, like what we were saying, that he is both king of Salem and priest of God most high. And here in verses 1 through 3, the writer of Hebrews says this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abram returning from Abraham, sorry, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed them, verse 2. To whom also Abram gave a tenth, part of first being translated king of righteousness. Again, you're following along in your outline there. King Maldedekat's name means king of righteousness. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And so also the writer of Hebrews says, listen, King Melchizedek comes out, King Melchizedek blesses Abram, King Melchizedek appoints Abram to who actually gave him the victory. Oh yeah, guess what? His name means righteousness. Ultimately, King Melchizedek points us to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus ultimately is the true king of righteousness. How do we know that? What does the word righteousness mean? It simply means understanding that right living, perfect, walking in obedience to God. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And the author of Hebrews picks that up and says, listen, true righteousness comes from Jesus. True righteousness comes from Jesus. Which is why we have hope. Because as sinners, as, as people who have broken God's law, when we come to put our faith and trust in Jesus, 
When we come and put our faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus' righteousness is applied to our lives so that when, we, when God looks at us as His children, He does not see a sinful humanity. Instead, He sees Christ's righteousness applied to us. Which is why we can be friends of God, sons of God. And the author of Hebrews picks this up and said, Melchizedek's name means righteousness, but he wasn't really the true king of righteousness. Jesus was. He lived a perfect, sinless life and perfectly walked in obedience to God. He went to the cross. He died on the cross. His sacrifice is greater than with the blood of bulls and goats because this doesn't cover up sin. It actually takes away our sin. So that Jesus, so that when God looks at us, He sees Jesus' perfection, His righteousness instead. Jesus is the true King of righteousness. So Melchizedek, He is the King of righteousness, pointing to Jesus, the true King of righteousness. And then at the very end, verse 2, and also, he is the king of Salem. And the word Salem means peace. He is the king of Salem, meaning he's the king of a city that is named peace. So the writer of Hebrews does this. It's understanding of who Melchizedek, uh, he is the king of Salem. He is the priest of the Most High God. He comes out and, and Abram, uh, and points uh, Abram to what, what actually happened, that God was the one behind all this. And, and Abram worships uh, God Most High, the Lord with uh, Melchizedek and so forth. The writer of Hebrews picks this up and says, listen, Abram, he is... All the other descendants of the nation of Israel comes from Abram. And so here you have this scene where Abram is joining in and worshiping with this guy, the priest of God Most High. Oh yeah, and by the way, his name means righteousness. Pointing to the true king of righteousness. He's the king of a city that if you actually look at the, the city's name, means peace. Oh yeah, by the way, he points to the true king of peace. Melchizedek points us to Jesus. How is Jesus, how is Jesus the true king of peace? I want to read, especially this time of year, we always talk about, you know, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, and Especially when you're looking at, you know, sometimes our world today and the chaos, we, we, we yearn and we long for to have peace. And I want to read some verses dealing with how Jesus is that true King of Peace. Number one, Jesus gives us peace between us and God. We are no longer enemies, Scripture says. But we are friends. We are sons. We're daughters of God. Jesus' peace that He gives us as believers in Jesus Christ means that we no longer have to uh, be at, if you want to say, war with each other. But he, Jesus' peace allows us to be at peace with one another. But we have to experience that true inner peace 
in our own lives. Listen to what Jesus says in, in John. John chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. These are... Um, these verses I want to read from the Gospel of John is as Jesus is preparing His disciples for what's about ready to happen. They're confused. They don't really know what Jesus is talking about. They, 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 they kind of are starting to get it, but Jesus is over and over again telling them, hey, you know, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And they're like, where are you going? What's going to happen? And listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verses 25. These things I have spoken to you, which while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance, remind you all these things I have said to you. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, but I give to you. And because Jesus gives His disciples this peace, He says this, let not your hearts be troubled. And don't be afraid. You have heard me say to you that I am going away but I, and, I, and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I am going to the Father and my Father is greater than I am. Flip over to John chapter 16. Again, it's understanding of peace. He's, he's helping His disciples during this difficult time to realize in the midst of this chaos, listen, you can have peace. You can experience this deep inner peace. John chapter 16, verses 31 through 33. Jesus answered him, Do you now, do you now believe? Look, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own. And you're going to leave me alone. And that's not what the disciples, you think of Peter. Jesus, Peter says, Listen, I'm going to die for you. And Jesus is like, No, you're not. In a few short hours, you're going to disown me not just once, not just twice, but three times. Jesus gets arrested. What happens to all his disciples? They go flying. They're like, no, buddy, you're on your own. They wanted to get out of there like crazy. The Gospel of Mark tells us who probably was, uh, it probably was Mark, as he was following Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane, he, guy, God grabs them, and he wanted to get out of there so fast that he ran out of his clothes, literally ran out of his clothes. And the soldier was hanging on to his clothes as he ran away. But then listen to what Jesus says. But I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me, in Jesus, you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. You'll have trials. You'll have hardships. You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Be courageous. Because I have overcome this world. That's why Paul can say in Philippians, where is, where is he in Philippians? He is in prison. His life circumstances are horrible in prison. But he says, and I've learned to be content. I can cast all my cares. I can, I can go to God and, and, and pray to God and be constantly praying to God. And then he says this, that the, um, the peace of God, let me read it to you so I don't put it wrong here. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6-7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, 
with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And usually we stop there, but the Paul's sentence continues. And the peace of God, as you cry out to Him, as you are not anxious about anything, why? Because you're taking your request and be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. No matter life circumstances, and we need to hear this today more than ever, Jesus is the King of true peace. Jesus is the, is the true King of peace. No matter what our life circumstances and the chaos we are dealing with in our nation, in political unrest, in our, our nation with health unrest like crazy, with friends and family, and, and all, this, all this stuff that's going on right now. According to Paul, no matter what life circumstances, according to Jesus, we can experience that true inner peace that surpasses all understanding because of who Jesus is. This weird guy with a weird name in old, the Old Testament, Melchizedek, who we, have, we will never see again, except for this, these, these six verses that talk about him in Genesis 14, comes to Abram and says, listen, God's the one that gave you the victory. And Abram recognizes that, and so he, he, he gives him a tithe as a sign of worshiping God and saying, God, everything that I have comes from you and from no one else. The writer of Hebrews picks this guy up and says, listen, this guy, who he was as king of Salem, points to Jesus, the true king of peace. Even his name points us to Jesus. That Jesus is the true king of righteousness. Even how he was both priest and king points us to Jesus. Because Jesus is king of kings. Jesus is Lord of lords. Jesus is over everything in this world. And he is that priest that intercedes on our behalf as the New Testament talks about. His sacrifice is greater than any animal sacrifice. Melchizedek points us to Jesus. And are we glad, especially as we celebrate who Jesus, how He came, how He died on the cross, how He rose again, aren't we glad that these elements of Jesus' character, the righteousness that God, that Jesus gives to us when we put our faith and trust in Him, but also that peace in our lives. That no matter how crazy our lives get, that we can be still and we can pause and we can cast our cares. We can be, we're not supposed to worry. We, we go to God in prayer knowing that He's the King, He's in control and we can trust in Him because He's a good King, a loving King. And He gives us that peace that we can continue to trust in Him. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding May it guard our hearts and our minds because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray.